Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Jamie, hello. This is Lawrence Olivier, yeah? Last week you watched my movie, Henry V. Did you like that movie? Hey? <laughs> it was a real bangover film. But what you didn't understand was the Prime Minister was right up in my grill on that movie. Is that what the kids say these days? Up on my grill? It was a real time, but I tell you, we had some good times. We had some ladies. We had some brewskis, as they say in the States. It was a real fucking good time. But this week we got a different one. You may remember Henry V, it was all about Shakespeare, right? But this movie here, this movie's about broads, this movie's about guns, this movie's about everything that Lawrence Olivier loves. This movie is called Goldfinger, so enjoy it on for screen and country. Wow, that was a uh, different side of Lawrence Olivier. He sounded a lot different than I expected, given how <laughs> awesome he was with the Shakespeare in the movie. I wouldn't have thought he was quite quite so lower sixth, as Roger Waters might say. Are, are we sure that wasn't Jason Statham? Um, I don't think that sounded quite like Jason Statham. J- Jason Statham's more like this. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second, is he... How did we get him... He's, he's since deceased. Hmm. Did we just pull Sky Captain? You, we may have. I, I was in contact with Kerry Conran, and he hooked me up with uh, Lawrence Olivier's phone number, so it was nice to talk to him. You thought of that so quickly. Yeah, I know, it's weird how I just know those weird directors like that. Especially as a guy who hasn't really done much since. Well, I mean, what, where can you go after Skycap? That's right, it's really hard to go from there. That was such a such a neat movie. You can only go down from there. When you have Angelina Jolie in both an eye patch and a military uniform, mm, what else can you do? Except calm. Well, you've officially made uh, most of the listeners tune out after that. Well, thanks to all ten of you for stopping by. <laughs> we still got one of you on. Uh, so, Jason, we do have a movie to talk about this week. However, first, we need to talk about Henry V. Uh, Jason had to step away for a moment because this part is definitely not recorded immediately before the episode comes out uh, with the rest of the show recorded at an earlier date. That definitely doesn't happen. But thankfully, I do have someone to join me here at this time. Please welcome Steve from Everything I Learned from Movies. Hey, everybody. What up? What up, Steve? Not much. How about you? Just come here and talk some Henry V. Yeah. He- oh, oh, Steve. Oh, no. No. This is what? not the... Uh, as we, as Jason and I discussed uh, last week, this is not the fifth uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer movie. I hate to disappoint you. Oh, Really? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was weird that Shakespeare was credited as a writer, but, I mean, uh, you know, 
it's just uh, a... loose interpretations of an original screenplay or something. You know that stuff works out. No, but no big deal. It could have been like his like great 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 grandson or something. Or <laughs> it, it, you know, there's not just one Billy Shakespeare out there. Let's be I right. hope. I hope the descendant of William Shakespeare lives among us and is writing like the worst screenplays. <laughs> <laughs> he goes by the name M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, shit. <laughs> Shakespeare liked to go from country to country. All right. Richard Bachman. <laughs> so, last week, as you well know, Steve, as a listener, I'm assuming. Yes. Jason and I did Henry V. Indeed. And we did get some comments from some Facebook folks about that that film. Uh, so our first one here is from Eugene Kang, and it says, Lawrence Olivier's versions are more obviously theatrical and indebted to stage conventions than other adaptations, which is fine. I personally love the Russian version of Hamlet, which is the most visual dynamic version of that play that I have ever seen. Have you, uh, I know, how many Shakespeare movies have you seen, Steve? Not counting The Lion King. Um, at least two, no. I, I've seen a number, actually. Like, I've seen okay. a lot of versions of Hamlet and, uh, you know, Macbeth. And um, I actually, probably my favorite one, though. I mean, everyone knows, like, Romeo and Juliet and uh, the, the Temptress and all that stuff. I'm sorry, The Tempest? Tempest, that's Tempest, it. Tempest, yeah. Um, the Temptress but, is a movie with Joni Lauer, I'm assuming. It sounds like it. Yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. I, I often get it mixed up. But uh, probably my favorite, though, is when he dived in the sequels and did Hamlet 2. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, a great Shakespearean adaptation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's some other great comments on here. Like uh, we got one here from Jenny Roger. Uh, Tom Hiddleston apparently does a great Henry the Fourth and Fifth in the Hollow Crown series. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, but uh, Branagh's Hamlet is my favorite just because it's so bananas casting-wise. It is. It really is. Yeah, that wasn't that like late 90s, or was that early 90s? When we did uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I remember it was like within a few years of that. It was like I think. 96, I think? Yeah, it And it's got like right Billy Crystal and like Charlton Heston and Robin Williams. Like, Really? I think so. Wow. I know it has Robin Williams and Charlton Heston in it. I especially like the training montage from Henry IV as opposed to Henry V, uh, where he's like in Russia. <laughs> right, and he ends he uh, he ends communism with his Saint Crispin's Day yes. speech. Amanda <laughs> <laughs> <the> fellows. <laughs> this is this one is from Beckley's Devoe or Becca Devoe because I had a hard time pronouncing that last time, so we'll go with Becca. She says she hasn't seen this one, but I ha she says I have to give my favorite adaptation to West Side Story, aka Romeo and Juliet, because it's just so beautiful and the music and dancing are electric. I've never seen West Side Story. <gasps> You've never seen the Jets versus the Sharks? Hey, no, I have not. <laughs> all I know <laughs> is that song that's like I want to be in America. That's all I yeah. know. <laughs> That uh, yeah, doesn't pretty... age super well, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely want to check it out. Yeah, it's uh, obviously more <laughs> a more 50s musical kind of an interpretation of Romeo and Juliet, but uh, yeah, definitely... It's on the AFI. Than... Is it really? It is on the AFI, yeah. I think mm. it's like a little ways down the list, but it's still on there. 
Interesting. The Film Institute list always continued to baffle me, personally. What does Sean Williams Holt say? Well, Sean Williams Holt has an interesting opinion. Um, He's seen this one, uh, but I felt it was much more style over substance. Olivier's adaptations fall a bit short for me in that they don't do much new with the source material. My favorite is Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight, based on the character of John Falstaff. Mmm. I've never seen that. We're the we're the most we're the two most qualified people to do this, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Orson Welles, the uh, voice of Unicron from Transformers the movie. Yeah, well, that's yeah, what we all that. know him from. Yeah, 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 yeah. Citizen Who? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a uh, Doctor Who, I believe. Oh, sorry. I I, I was watching the pre- the prequel series when he was just a citizen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, before he went to medical school. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Tanya Nicole says Branna's uh, Branna's Much Ado About Nothing 10 Things I Hate About You and Fastbender's Macbeth those are her favorite ones Uh, I teach Brit Brit Lit so I've seen many of the adaptations the soundtrack to Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet defines my 8th grade year but I'm not a huge fan of the movie I honestly don't remember much from that movie except that it looked very pretty yeah, it was, and of course, like, whenever they're, like, talking about long swords and stuff, it's like, that means, like, shotguns, and, uh, yeah, see how back when it first came out a couple times, incredible staff and all that, or cast, sorry, incredible cast and all that, but... <laughs> Steve just got home from work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Spoiler to everybody, I'm a little tired. Uh, but yeah, Brenna's Much Ado About Nothing was pretty damn good, too. And uh, I know Joss Whedon did a version of it, like, four or five years ago, I want to say. Um, I haven't seen it, but it has, like, Nathan Fillion and, you know, all the usual Joss Whedon people. But I heard good things from, like, That's the three people that watched it. I think what it gives me a hard time, every time I watch a Shakespeare movie where they didn't, like, it's a straight adaptation, is, like, it's really hard to get past the language. Like, just the... I don't know, I just find it kind of difficult to parse sometimes. Yeah, well, that's why, like, many people love, like, Ten Things I Hate About You, of course, the interpretation of Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, I correct me if I'm wrong, in the original Shakespeare play, I'm pretty sure they didn't have somebody jump up and sing, You're just too good to be true. Um, no, I'm pretty sure, uh, well, I'm going to correct you, I think you're wrong. Oh, God damn it. And I think he also had Heath Ledger in mind at the time. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? R.I.P. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, Tracy Lee Brown uh, said, I think this is my favorite Henry V. <laughs> Sorry, Henry V. <laughs> <laughs> this is my fave Henry V. Uh, but Branna's Much Ado About Nothing is also a fave. So there you go. A second uh, Much Ado mention. Yeah, Branna does some good uh, Shakespeare stuff, apparently. Jim Williams says, it's been a while, but I remember it being kind of over the top towards the end. I know he was using it to encourage England in their fight against fascism, but I liked Branna better in the role. You could see him growing into his kingship before your eyes, and he did not seem at all melodramatic in his Agincourt speech. Uh, Olivier seemed to be playing to the back of the theater in some roles. He was completely out of control in Othello, but he reined it in with Hamlet. He probably shaved off an hour and a half off that one, though. Yeah, whereas Branna is like the entire play, and that's why it's over four hours. Yeah, it's almost like a mini series. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a it's a doozy to get through, but apparently worth it if you can. Well, and Caitlin Hansen brought up one uh, Titus uh, adaptation starring Anthony Hopkins. Uh, Titus with Anthony Hopkins, uh, director Julie Taymor has such an amazing eye and imagination. That's one I've never seen actually. 
it's one of those that's been on my Netflix queue for, I'll say, conservatively eight years. Um, <laughs> Wait, but, so uh, <laughs> is Titus, a, what, what is Titus an adaptation? Is there a play called Titus? I believe so. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not the biographical uh, film about comedian Christopher Titus, although that is a story that I would love to hear. I literally wrote down in my in my brain, I bet Steve is going to men- mention Christopher Titus. <laughs> I mean, why not? Have you seen the television show? I- I'm sure it's kind of an adaptation of that now that I think about it. I was going to say, way back I've seen it. <laughs> oh, I wonder if Stacey Keach is in the movie. I'll- okay, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to move it up in the queue. <laughs> Ryan Terry says, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet and Much Ado About Nothing, West Side Story, Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, and a really good but underrated one is Trevor Nunn's adaptation of Twelfth Night starring Helena Bonham Carter. Ooh, very nice. Again, I have not seen a lot of Shakespeare movies. I may have seen, like... This Romeo and Juliet, like, in school, and I just don't remember. Because, <laughs> you know, they show you, they don't tell you, like, whose version they're playing. They're like, here's the play, watch it, alright, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> yeah, next three classes taken care of. Yeah. <laughs> How long are we going to have a substitute teacher? Right. <laughs> By the way, I would personally like to see a uh, version of West Side Story produced by Ice Cube, and it's called oh. the West Side Connection. Holy it shit. Uh, works in some sort of bank robbery, or... Yeah, there's got to be at least a, at least one car chase in it. And can he at some point say it's going to be a good day? Absolutely. Okay, I mean, good. that's how he that's how he starts off. That's like it, part of the opening uh, monologue. Oh, he says it in Anaconda. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you got to say it. Also written by William Shakespeare. Yes, obviously. Based on Twelfth Night, I believe. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Leslie Horn says, Ian McKellen's reimagining of Richard III, not Richard III, Steve, as a 20th century dictator was also great. Have you seen that one? You're an Ian McKellen, uh, Ian McKellen-niac? <laughs> it's exactly what we're called. Uh, yeah. N- I don't believe so. Okay. It is interesting, <laughs> though, like, um... Okay, so this one, this one, it says, uh, if we are counting loose adaptations, and this one is an adaptation of Hamlet in the loosest sense... My favorite has to be The Lion King. But look who wrote this. Derek McDuff. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I just think it's I just think it's weird that McDuff would recommend a different Shakespeare adaptation than an adaptation of his own play. I mean, yeah, The Lion King is Hamlet. That's true. I never even thought about that. Basically. Yeah, and luckily we're going to get another uh, version of it later this year. It's gonna yeah, be maybe in this version they'll actually show like Simba wanting to like fuck his mother. I believe that's uh, Oedipus Rex, that, which that, I th- believe was written by Stephen King, if I remember correctly. <laughs> okay, I think one of those things is wrong, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure in Hamlet, he like has a weird sexual... Doesn't he like go after his own mom or something? I think he becomes king by having to marry his mom, just because okay. that's how things were done, and otherwise whoever she married would be king. Right. I. They have I, to consummate, though. I mean, look, if you're the king, you can just be like, hey, we did it, all right? No no more further questions. No further questions. Fake news. You are fake news. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to wrap this up, Steve, these are all the comments, but we do, uh, Jason and I usually do one last thing here. Uh, We compare this movie, which is number 18, 18 on the BFI, which I think is 
crazy high. And we compare it to the number 18 on the AFI. Well, to be fair, Kess was number 7, and from what I understand, there's not a lot there, but I, I haven't seen it. I just heard uh, two gentlemen speaking about it from Newfoundland, or New Brunswick. <laughs> New or, Brunswick. Which one are you in? It's New Brunswick. New Brunswick, New Brunswick. Um, so, you know, educated chaps, but I haven't personally seen it. Um, but yeah, what's on the AFI number 18? Number 18 on the AFI. I don't know if you've seen this one, Steve. This actually, no joke, is a little bit more obscure than I would think at number 18. But it's a silent film with Buster Keaton called The General. Um, it might have been the Buster Keaton movie I've seen. Is it the one where the house falls and he's, like, standing in the window? Nope. Oh, then... <laughs> no, I have not seen uh, Michael Keaton's... What was it called again? <laughs> Buster Keaton's the general. He goes to rescue uh, his train during the Civil War, and yes, folks, he's fighting for the South. <laughs> Coming next week. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I think it's a it's a really uh, fun movie. It's got a lot of cool like stunts before you could actually get stunt people. There's lots yeah. of scenes where you're like, oh, if Buster Keaton moved an inch to the left, he would be dead. Like he's sitting on the wheel of the train at one point. Yeah. Like okay. it's crazy shit. So. Oh. Oh, it's the one, is it, okay, so it's the one where he's, like, walking along the side of the train, like, on the wheels and stuff, and the little bars that, uh, kind of keep the wheels in unison or whatever. Yeah, like, I, he's, I, I, I've probably seen clips and stuff of it, he, but. He's sitting yeah. on that bar, there's even a point where there's, like, a real explosion, like, he, he hang he hangs there by, like, a, he's, he's in the front of a train at one point while it's driving, kind of like the villain, but done more realistically. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy, because that movie, The General, was made in, like, the 1920 or something like that, so... <laughs> well, they didn't, they didn't have Hal Needham back then, but yeah, Buster <laughs> Keaton, definitely the Jackie Chan of his day. Correct, in every single way. So I'm going to give it to The General, and Steve is ruling a no contest, I'm assuming? Um, you know what? I'll give it to America. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> I, I, I'm just assuming. <laughs> so before, before Jason and I uh, start talking about Goldfinger, Steve, Ooh. where can they find you, your podcast? Uh, well, if you've enjoyed my banter, or if not, uh, you can find us at Everything I Learned From Movies. It's me and my wife, Izzy. We talk about uh, questionable movies, uh, drink some great beer, and uh, usually funny third thing. Uh, you can also find us having special guests like Brendan and Nathan from What Were They Thinking podcast. <gasps> Perhaps you've heard of them. Um haven't had Jason yet, but uh, eventually we'll wrangle that wild heart in. Um, <laughs> he needs to be, t he's a gentle soul. Yeah. We've also uh, had some great interviews with the likes of like John C. McGinley and Thomas Jane and Sven Thorson and just all kinds of actors and directors and stunt people. Uh, just sharing our love for movies. Uh, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> uh, we have yet to have one that's on the AFI or BFI Top 100, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> You never know. We may eventually run out of bad movies. I feel like Terminator 2 was the closest you've come. <laughs> we uh, we did the original Terminator. Oh, sorry. Well, then, there you go. I'll still say Terminator is the closest you've come. <laughs> Pro probably, yeah. Big Trouble in Little China doesn't break those uh, those lists often. I, um, I, I believe Big Trouble was on the 1998 list. <laughs> although, I do think Time Bandit should have been on the BFI Top 100. Oh, hot take. Hot, hot take. take. Take that, Britain. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you, you're you're taken after Jason quite well, <laughs> insulting our entire <laughs> audience. Um, 
But that having said, thank you again, Steve, for joining me for this little oh. b- brief nugget. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's, it's truly a pleasure. Uh, I kid a lot, but uh, I think you guys have a great show. I'm actually learning a lot about, um, what are they called? Good films. <laughs> and uh, it's definitely the exact opposite of our podcast, <laughs> although we still try to make them entertaining. And, uh, I mean, there's definitely aspects, even in bad movies, that we love to point out, just to be like, no, the, the bones are here, just execution <laughs> not so much. <laughs> exactly well uh, yeah and uh, if you guys want to check out a great show check out their show as well everything i learned from movies with all that being said ladies and gentlemen we jason and i are now going to talk about gold finger gold finger he's the man the man with the mind A cold finger Beckons you To enter his web of sin But don't go in Golden words he will pour in your Holy shit, what a great song. So that, uh, that, 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 if that doesn't get you amped for a James Bond film... I don't know what will. You know what, Jason? We didn't talk about what we do on this show. This is a podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss the top 100 British films of all time, as indicated by the British Film Institute in the year of our Lord, 1999. And I am Brendan. And I am Jason. And this is called For Screen. And Country. And today, we are talking about number 70 number on the 70. list, which makes it the, the lower ranked of mm. the two Bond films on this list, which we will definitely get into, Yeah, especially when we get to the other Bond yeah. movie. Goldfinger, as if you couldn't tell by that opening theme. They always the say, man with the Midas Touch. They only say Goldfinger about 70 times yeah. during the whole thing. That's what he calls him. He doesn't call him Auric. I mean, he's got a great name, which is hilariously derived from the Latin name for gold. Oh, Rick! <laughs> that just sounds like you're, you're trying to get Rick's attention. That's true. Arik! Oh, Rick! Oh, Rick! <laughs> hey, it's me. It's me, Jimmy Bond. Hey! CIA agent Jimmy Bond here. <laughs> Jimmy Bond, gangster. That, for real, in, in, the, in the early 50s, they did a live production of Casino Royale. It was the first televised James Bond production. And, yes, G- he was Jimmy Bond, CIA agent, because it was made in the Americas. Okay. Well, the one America specifically. I the know. northern one. I mean, let's get into this, Jason. Number right. 70, like I said, Goldfinger, James Bond, our first James Bond movie we've talked about mm-hmm. on this here list. The movie does have a plot. Yeah. Tell us, uh, tell us, tell us what happens. Would you like to know what happens? Goldfinger. I'd like to know what happens in Goldfinger. The man with the Midas touch. Uh, So this movie is interesting because, and we'll probably talk about it later, but this movie establishes a lot of the conventions for the James Bond formula. And we see that because the movie opens up with the, uh, the, uh, what are you, the gun barrel, the... Oh, and then like, and then it comes in, and then it shoots at James Bond. Now we have to remember too, this was at a time, 1964. This was in a great transition period in men's fashion. This was at a time when hats were starting to fall out of style. And you'll notice in these early James Bond movies when they do this this bit, he is wearing a hat. 
but it doesn't last for very long. I think it's only two or three movies. I didn't then, even notice the hat. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's wearing like I don't. Know, I, I wanted to say it was a bowler, but it's not. It's probably a Homburg or, or a fedora. I don't know. I'm not a hat guy because it's nine. It's 1999. No, it's 2018. It's 2019. Jason, do you know that's where my you final are? offer? Where who offer? Yeah, Jason, are you okay? <laughs> I'm having a rough night. Are you having know. a mental breakdown on this podcast? <laughs> Guys, just pull it together. Full disclosure: we j- both just got done work, yeah. so we're a little out of sorts. We've but... had to deal with the public all day, so now we're just dealing with our friends here. So this is okay. This is a relaxation thing. We so, love you. We love doing this. Let's get back to it, Brendan. Okay. So Bond, he comes in, he does his thing. But here's the thing: so the the cold open of this movie is Bond doing some actual spy shit. Heroin bananas. Was there heroin bananas? Yep, that's what he said. He's like, well, they won't they won't smuggle in any more heroin in the bananas. Wow, what a strange thing to smuggle. So, but he he deals with it in a James Bond way. He dresses all up in black. He sneaks in. He gets into the the huge tanks where they hold the heroin bananas. And inside the tank, there's like a living room and a bunch of barrels that I assume have heroin bananas in them. And he pulls out a tube and he smears a bunch of fucking plastic explosive all over it. uh, Sets it with a physical clock, like a literal like alarm clock that your grandparents probably had. And uh, leaves takes off his uh, his blacks and reveals that he is underneath wearing the famous white smoking jacket James Bond look. He goes to the party that's going on nearby and pulls up his clearly branded Rolex watch, which is held on for just a little too long. And Gotta then, get that money. Yeah, exactly. And then we get an explosion. And everybody's screaming, but James Bond is still smiling because he knows what's going on. He decides to celebrate his success of his mission by banging a chick. He goes back to his room. He starts to get hot and heavy with this lady. And... Uh, as they're getting hot and heavy, a fella sneaks up behind James Bond with what is, I assume, a blackjack or a piece of wood. Yeah. And he goes to smack James Bond with that piece of wood. James Bond is smarter than this guy is. Sees her, his reflection in his lady's eye. And because the lady didn't say anything, he swings around and lets the lady get whacked by the board really hard. And she gets knocked down. A struggle ensues, Brendan. And then the eventually the, the, the henchman, the bad guy, is thrown into the bathtub where the lady had been lounging previously. And he reaches for the wall where James Gun- James Bond's... James Gunn. James Gunn's director, Bond. Director of Guardians of the Galaxy, James, James Gunn. Gunn. His, his Bond, or gun. James Bond's gun is hanging <laughs> on the wall. The man grabs for it. James Bond grabs the fucking heater. The electric heater is on the floor. Tosses into the tub. Electrocutes the henchman. Walks up to the tub. Looks in the tub and says... Shocking. shocking. Absolutely Shocking. The girl, by the way, is not dead. She's she's just, not dead. She's just knocked out. And but James, she's, I mean, I think she's a villain. Yeah, well, she doesn't she doesn't alert James Bond, so clearly he's not going to stick around and fuck yeah, her because yeah. she's a bad person. And I guess he doesn't fuck bad people. Well, I mean, we'll and that see. is the first like three minutes. Yeah, and, all and, the stuff that Jason just said. Yeah, three minutes yeah, of screen time. There's a lot that happens in this movie, and it moves pretty quick. So we're going to talk about it. Um, and so that right after that is. <laughs> Yeah, then we we kick into the sequence. I just want to say though, like okay. like as far as opening sequence go, this is a pretty quick one. Um, obviously, we get into later ones. You watch like Casino Royale from two thousand six has a long ass opening Even sequence. Skyfall too. Skyfall is a long ass opening sequence, but that's generally been the formula now. James Bond films, you have an opening five ten minutes that's not related to the rest of the movie, but helps set up James Bond and whatever he's up to. I think maybe Quantum of Solace maybe broke that, but most of them have been pretty much. I've seen most James Bond films. Two that I specifically have not seen are Quantum of Solace and Spectre, but doesn't matter for this one. Wait, what? This is not Quantum of Spectre Solace? Spectre Solace, which would yes. be a terrible name for me. Do-do-do-do-do! Spectre Solace! So now we have titles, and the movie begins in kind. While on vacation, Bond gets word from his boss, M, 
Although interestingly, in this movie, I believe Bernard Cromwell or Cornwall Bernard plays, Lee. Bernard Lee plays yes. uh, M in most of the movies, but not in this one. He does in this one. Oh well, who's the other guy? The guy with the mustache that plays M in a lot of them, like the Roger Moore era. Whatever. Anyways, this M is fine. By the so, way, I just realized that I shrugged my shoulders on a audio on an podcast. Audio podcast, yeah. Please continue. As so, I... so Bond's in Miami on vacation, you know, relaxing after a mission well done. But he gets word from M via CIA agent Felix Leiter, who we see occasionally over the course of the Bond movies. Who is a different actor in this movie, yeah. by the way. Uh, then... Jack Lord and Dr. No. Uh, Seasick Linder or something his name is. And, and, like, the weird thing is, like, he's the same age as Jack Lord, but mm. he's almost too old for yeah. this role. He seems like, uh, as a contemporary of Bond, who, by the way, Sean Connery's only 33 in this movie. Wait, wait, wait. Sean Connery's only 33 in this movie? Sean Connery looks like he's 48 in this movie. Really? I think he looks pretty young. I mean, he looks good, but it's the fact that he's, you know, in those days, people smoked a lot. I mean, in the 60s, man. Yeah. But yeah, yeah no, Connery's only 33. Wow, he's and, younger than I am now. Uh, Felix Leiter lo- looks like he's like a 60-year-old He man. does, definitely. Looks like he's an old dude. But he's only, you ready for this? 43. Again, cigarettes are a hell of a drug, people. Stay away from them. Uh, he gets word through Felix that uh, uh, Oric Goldfinger, who's a prominent gold dealer... Played by Gert Frobe. Gert Frobe, in his uh, career-defining role, mm-hmm. um, is at the same resort and needs to be kind of kept an eye on, to observe. And, and you'll notice, too, if you've if you've ever seen Austin Powers in Goldmember, I think you'll notice that the outfit that, that Goldfinger is wearing early in this movie is the exact same outfit that Goldmember wears when he's roller skating, I think. I, I and, thought, uh, yeah, I thought about Austin Powers a lot <laughs> yeah. when I was watching this movie. Well, especially, I mean, it, it refers to this movie a lot. Well, yeah, and there's even a scene where Goldfinger talks about how he loves gold, and yeah. all I could think of is gold, gold. Goldmember saying, I love gold! I love gold! Also, guys, if I say gold member by mistake a yeah. few times, it's trust me, it's gonna happen. Send your send your angry emails to Mike Myers and let him fucking deal with it. Exactly. It's his fault. So so Goldfinger is there and he needs to be observed. So James realizes that he's playing Gin Rummy with a fella and basically cheat like literally cheating him. And he's got this uh, this fucking earpiece in his ear, which I don't know how nobody notices, or maybe they just assume it's a hearing aid, but he's got this big ass earpiece in his ear and James wanders into the hotel and steals the key off a uh, uh, a maid and opens the door. But she's her. very sweet. She's very sweet. That's what uh, he says to her. But he literally grabs the key like on her like key ring and pulls it and pulls her over and opens the door. Goes in, finds this very attractive young lady sitting there with a pair of binoculars, watching uh, Goldfinger's opponent's hand and calling down the results to Goldfinger through the device in his ear. And Bond decides to insert himself into the situation takes over the uh, microphone, tells Goldfinger that basically this is how it is now, and he's got to lose a bunch of money, or shit's going to happen. Yeah, well, this is the thing, this is the old Bond thing. Yeah. That instead of, like, jumping right into the action, because I find, like, a lot of... I mean, I'm going to be honest with you right now. I haven't seen all of the Bond movies. I mean, I've seen quite a few of them. Not a lot of recent ones, but... Mm. I feel like back then it was more common for him to just kind of fuck with people first. Yeah, he fucks... It's like he's a spy. He's supposed to be a spy. And rather than, like, gathering intel and, and like, keeping an eye on him, he's literally actively fucking with him for reasons that I'm not... Because like, making him lose money at cards, like, what does that pisses do? Pisses him off. It just pisses yeah. Goldfinger off. I mean, maybe, maybe that's part of his plan to see the real man, but I don't know. But then, to extra fuck with Goldfinger, he decides to fuck Jill. 
Because why wouldn't you? She's very attractive. Very attractive. So, so they have a role in the uh, in the bed, uh, back in James's room, and then a shadowy figure shows up while James is getting some Dom Perignon 54, My 56. favorite person yeah. in this movie. In this movie, shows up a shadowy figure and knocks James out. I don't know if you caught this, yeah. but there is an odd line during this scene. I want to play an audio clip for an you. odd line, you would say. <laughs> yes. As All right, well, let's play job. Let's hear it. I, I just want to just... just uh, it's kind of under the rug, but I want you to listen to this. Oh, it's lost its chill. Oh, why you? There's another in the fridge. Who needs it? My dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done. Such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above a temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Beatles slam! <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's. Uh, I, I mentioned this when I was watching the movie that that's how old a movie this is, that they were taking shots at the Beatles, and, and uh, you know, because they were a popular thing at the time. 1964. 1964, right? they were still very much in their poppy type And phase. very much in their prime, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, they hadn't. They'd taken off. But they were still, I think they were still kind of like a One Direction type deal. Like yeah. they were thought of as like yeah. a band that the kids love. But they had candy. They had morphed into their like real mm. fucked up stuff. You know what I mean? Wow. It wasn't like I am the walrus. Yeah, but and, but I mean back then. I mean that was the thing. I mean it happens today with pop groups. It happened back then with pop groups. I know there. I think it was Alan King or one of those cigar smoking bearded comics that, that had a song called "I Hate the Beatles" to the soon tune of "Pop Goes the Weasel." So. People suck back in the '60s. They they weren't real smart. It's just really. Uh, it's just one of those things that it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't age, but in a way, it it doesn't age in a way that like what? Who the fuck would have that opinion? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, back to Bond's room. So Bond is knocked out, and we later learn that this was Odd Job, who is Goldfinger's servant, and who is way taller than I expected. Uh, not that he's super tall or anything, but if you've ever played the 1997 Nintendo 64 video game Goldeneye, you will know that Oddjob is an unlockable character in that game, and he is OP because he is very short, and um, it is almost impossible to hit him with the slapper if uh, you are if you don't have a gun. It's so, also th- that that concludes our Goldeneye Strategy Guide podcast. Oh, there'll be more probably more Goldeneye talk because I, I love that game. Uh, <laughs> So uh, and again, he's my favorite part. Yeah. So when Bond wakes up, he realizes that that Jill is no longer alive. She has been covered in a thick layer of gold paint and is then suffocated from that, which is a fake thing. Which is a fake thing. Mythbusters, I think, literally did an episode about this at some point. Yeah. All, but you know what? I don't know if you knew this, but it's so it was so convincing at the time. There were urban legends that they actually killed the actress on yeah. set. Which is so funny to think back then. It's right? like, wow, you think they would actually kill somebody to make a movie? And that's probably not too far off. But Yeah, it's very tastefully done, though. Like, it's, mm. she's completely nude, but yeah. it's very, like, it, it's, it's not... very attractive, yes. It, well, no, but it's not exploitive, though. No. Like, they, they hide, you know, the certain parts they need to hide. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So she is dead as fuck. So she is dead as fuck. So James, of course, bails and heads back to London, uh, where he is scheduled to have dinner with both the M and the current Chancellor of the Exchequer. Hmm. Of the Exchequer. Which is basically a finance minister type position, I believe, in the UK. Where they have some shitty brandy. If there's any UK listeners out there, perhaps you can enlighten me. Yeah, they have some shitty brandy that they're comment on, but Bond doesn't care. Bond drinks... Bond, like, there's a lot of times in this movie where it's like, I see where Archer gets his specific shit from, because Bond doesn't give a fuck. He's just happy to be drinking. But but uh, it's funny because he points out that it's shitty and yeah. M is the only one that doesn't really notice. <laughs> he kind of sniffs it and then like doesn't drink it after yeah. that. 
So they, they, they're having a working dinner. They're dressed up very nice, and they're in a very large room with all of them around a very large table, but there's only three of them. Uh, a servant comes by, brings them some, some cigars, you know, like how it is. So they, they, they start talking, and they talk about how gold prices vary by region to region, and that some people can move gold between regions and sell it and make a profit. Now, normally that would be something that you wouldn't, you wouldn't really be able to do because you'd have to go through customs and go through borders, but... Goldfinger, they believe, has been smuggling gold out of England and other places to sell it in regions where it's worth more money. And they want to find out what the hell's going on. That's Bond's mission. That's his initial mission, is to figure out how Goldfinger is smuggling gold out of the country. So, he heads over to Q Branch, and we see our old friend Meat Hooks, Desmond Llewellyn. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but he has fucking massive hands. I did not know his hand. Like, like seriously, like pull it. Go back to the movie after we're done here. Look at his hands. They are red and they are fucking huge. Well, when we do Doctor No, I will pay close attention. Uh, is he in that one? Probably. Well, we'll see. Uh, I got a question for you though. Yeah. I feel like you've watched. Perhaps you've watched more Bond than I have. I think I have because I think I've watched <laughs> just about all of them. I'm ask. I want to ask you now. Yeah. The scene where we see Q Branch. Yeah. Um, some of these gadgets we don't see in the movie. Yeah. Some of them is foreshadowing. Some of them are just there. Yeah. Did you not recognize any of these from like future movies? Do they ever come back? Like the gun, the gun uh, part where he's shooting the guy and like nothing happens. Oh no, no nothing stood out to nothing me specifically. Okay. But but that idea of like this room where just shit is going on, like that's in so many Bond movies. Like, oh, uh, uh, like Cuba Edge is literally that. It's like there's always shit going on in the background. There's always probably a huge sign that says no smoking. And not only Bond. I mean that gets referenced in so many films, like contemporary <laughs> movies, like. Even going back a few years, uh, the movie Spy. Yeah. Similar they, idea. They had a similar thing in that movie, yeah, too. Yeah, I mean, this established a lot of these conventions for spy yeah. movies. So he heads to Q Branch, and Olmi hooks, hooks him up with his new gadgets. Now, this is, I think, the first Bond movie where there really is a hardcore gadget component. And the gadgets aren't that exciting, uh, in, especially in comparison to later stuff. You they know, make like, a like the laser more, watch from Goldeneye. They make a little bit more sense. Oh, yeah, no, they're, they're very grounded. They make sense. So he's got an Aston Martin DB5, great car. Um, with a smoke screen, classic. He's got the Ben Hur tire shredders uh, that can rip tires off. I've never even thought about that yep. comparing it to Ben Hur. He's got two machine guns, one on each side that can pop out at any point. He's got sort of a proto GPS tracking unit where he has a he has a main unit which is about the size of a pack of cigarettes and a smaller unit which is about the size of I don't know what you, a like tiny a stick quarter? of gum. Like yeah, it's just a tiny little yeah. stick, like l smaller than most USB keys are even today. Like and a that, like a die, like a die. Yeah, yeah, kind of in that area. Ooh, Ooh. tempting the dice gods. That's right. Comparing um, them. So uh, he's given that, uh, and he also gives, uh, yeah, so he gets the radar trackers, whatever. Um, he can actually put the radar tracker in his shoe, as we'll later see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he heads to Kent, which is a place in England. Oh, okay. I thought you were at the warehouse supply place. There he meets Goldfinger for golf. Now, during the previous scene, uh, M and... and uh, M and... Uh, the Chancellor, wanted him to interact with Goldfinger, but they wanted him to, to have some legitimacy. Because the idea is that he's a gold uh, a gold dealer. And what kind of gold do they give him? They give him a piece of recovered and still stamped Nazi gold. Literal Nazi gold that was found in a wreck, I think a shipwreck, yeah. that they had obtained. And it, to the point where it has an Iron Eagle stamped on it and a number. So this I didn't even catch that the first time through. And when I watched it again, I was like, he has Nazi gold. Legit Nazi gold. 
Could have been very well Jewish people's teeth at some time. I mean, I, I don't say that as a joke. That's a legit fact. Yeah. So Terrifying. Yeah, very terrifying. So he meets Goldfinger for golf, and he brings this bar of Nazi gold with him to basically show off that he's, yeah, he's a legit gold dealer. He's got this bar of gold. But they start having a chat, and then it comes, Goldfinger basically wants that gold, so yeah. he challenges him to make it a little more interesting in this golf match. Now, is James Bond's caddy in this scene, does he know James Bond before this? Uh, that's a good question. I don't because know that he does, but it, clearly he's a very smart guy. He's a very observant. He's a very good caddy. He's, he's very an observer this. of people, yeah. I think the caddy is just that good of an observer of people and also a man that hates cheating so much in golf that, you know, it's time. He, he wants to make sure that this guy doesn't get away with it. It's time! It's time! It's Vader time. So, uh... Goldfinger puts up the equivalent of the gold, 5,000 quid. Yeah. Um, and they begin to play. I mean, Goldfinger knows he's up to something, but he just, whatever. They, they go and they play golf. He gets duped. I mean, he gets tricked. Yeah. He uh, he tries to cheat, but they out-cheat him, and Bond wins the money, and so Goldfinger knows something's going on, but he sends him off. And, uh, and Bond puts the tracker on them. And Bond puts the tracker on them. And so they head to Switzerland, so Bond follows them to Switzerland. Driving down these switchbacks, and this he's driving his Aston Martin DB5. It's no process shots day. whatsoever. Uh, and Bond, at one point, starts to get into a bit of a driving duel with another person on the road, which turns out to be a lady, uh, and she passes him. Now, this is one of the interesting moments in the movie, because he, he sees her, she drives past, he goes, Discipline, James? Now... I, was, even, I didn't even notice that. He, he says he's a disciplined James, and it's like, really, you were that you were that much of a sex fiend that, that just a girl driving by you is enough for you to go, no, James, we have a mission. We can't fuck this girl that we just saw drive by. <laughs> we can't fuck this random. We cannot motorist. fuck this random motorist that just drove by. <laughs> uh, so he so he valiantly holds himself back. What a, and, what a uh, hero! But we later learned that this is in fact Jill. Not uh, Dill, sorry, Tilly. Tilly, who was Jill's, the late Jill's sister, yes. who makes an unsuccessful atas- assassination attempt on Goldfinger as yeah. James is hanging out, observing a couple shots she, whiz by. She's not a good shot, but she somehow has a sniper rifle. Well, is it a sniper rifle? It looked like, like some sort of like Mauser broom handle pistol. I mean, she a has a gun that I would not expect her to have. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a war vintage piece of uh, uh, material. Made out of Nazi gold. Yeah. Probably. So Bond then sneaks into Goldfinger's facility, which is in Switzerland, um, and sees that he smuggles his gold by melting it down and casting it into parts for his Rolls-Royce Phantom, which Goldfinger for some reason drags, well, we know the reason, drags with him everywhere around the world. He always gets it loaded into his plane to take with him. Thank you for explaining that, because I actually had no idea what was going on. Well, thank Wikipedia for enlightening me to that. (laughs) So... And Bond, so he's, he's kind of sneaking around, and he, and he hears, I think, the nuclear physicist talking to Goldfinger and uh, mentioning something called Operation Grand Slam, which yes. is only heard about in passing at this point, but just hears it mentioned. So outside, he, he, he's, he's outside in the dark, and he again encounters Tilly, uh, who is who is desperate to kill Goldfinger. Yeah, she trips um, the alarm. So yeah, she trips the alarm, and who shows up but our old friend Oddjob. Who then murders Tilly with his hat? Now, if you've seen if you've seen Austin Powers, you will remember the great line: "Who throws a shoe?" I mean, really. Well, that comes from Goldfinger, where Oddjob literally throws his hat, which is a, a bowler of a bowler or a top hat of sorts that has a razor sharp edge around it. I have to call into question though the hat because. Yeah. When he demonstrates it, he throws it at a statue yeah. that knocks the head off the statue. When yeah. he throws it at Tilly's head, 
It just kind of sends her. It down. just cuts her throat, I would assume, and but we, we don't even really see it. But yes, yeah, like you think, it's like what what is, is is it the force? Like is this hat made out of like uranium? Is that, it so dense that it could knock a head off a statue? But yeah, that would have decapitated her. My theory is that Ajab has different weighted hats for different situations, and it happened that when he demonstrated on the statue, he was wearing his super heavy hat. But when he was out, you know, dealing with people, he was wearing his more practical throwing hat. Are you saying that he has like an entire hat like uh, I'm weapons? Seeing, he Weapons has an entire chamber? series of weighted hats from one gram up to 100 kilograms. So at this point, uh, Bond is captured by Oddjob. Tilly's dead. and uh, As fuck. As fuck. They, they take him into the facility and they strap him to a table. And we get the famous scene that everybody who's ever heard of James Bond has probably seen either parodied or, or shown at some point in some way. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. And he says it in a much more offhand way, kind of throws it away in a way that I'd forgotten because I always thought it was much more dramatic. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. No, he just kind of throws it away. Also not his real voice. Yeah. Wait, what? You didn't know that? Did somebody dub Gert Frobe? Oh, yeah, that's not his real voice. No, I did not know that. Fun fact. Was Was his German too thick? He had to speak all his lines phonetically uh, and at so twice the speed. Oh. So, actually, you know, now that we're at this point, I'm going to play this clip for you. Yeah, sure. The, just listen to a little bit. Um, we'll talk about her later. We haven't yeah. gotten to Pussy Galore yet, but Honor Blackman, who played Pussy Galore, talked a little bit about Gert Froby. It's a real quick clip here. Or Gert Frobe, whatever. Froby, Frobe, whatever. Just listen to this. He's dead. Who cares? I seen I shot on the balcony with Gert. And Gert had to start the scene, and he said, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> what was that? But his mouth stopped, so I thought, well, okay. So basically, he's, he's saying his lines phonetically and fast, yeah. so people on the set really have no idea have to be reading the script because they have no idea what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, he's totally dubbed. Okay, yeah, well, okay, that makes sense. So he's on. So he's on the table. He was left there to die. But then Bond convinces him that he knows something about Operation Grand Slam, and uh, that he's told, and that he's told MI6. Yeah. And so he figures that it's better to keep James Bond alive, so that I guess so that MI6 thinks that everything's going according to plan. Yeah, and it took me a second to figure that out. Yeah, too. yeah, it's not exactly like, totally clear. I was like, uh, wait, what? Now, and, and of course, we mentioned he's using a laser that is slowly creeping up the table that would theoretically cut James Bond in half once it hits his from crotch. crotch up. Yeah, from crotch up. So clearly Goldfinger knows what he's dealing with here. He's got to <laughs> threaten the thing that really matters to James Bond. First, I will take the most important weapon to you. Apparently, so, he's also Uwe Boll. Yeah. And so they, they knock him out again, and uh, they put him, Goldfinger puts him on his private plane, piloted by one pussy galore, the James Bond girl of this mm. film, I suppose. The only—I don't know if it's the only one, mm. but I think it's one of the few where the Bond girl is actually older yeah. than James Bond. She's thirty-nine at this time, and, and also not totally of the same sexual preference as James Bond. Oh well, maybe in that they both seem to prefer women. 
What? Yeah. There's been a theory for a lot of years that Pussy Galore is a lesbian, and I, I'm watching it again. It kind of There were a couple things that really stood out to me as to why that was the case. A couple things she says. One, Bond is talking to her and hitting on her, and she says, turn your charms off, Mr. Bond. Those don't work on me. I mean, they she, do eventually. They do eventually, but here, um, let me get there. Okay, okay. Uh, another one that stands out is that she says, uh, I'm an outdoorsy sort of girl. I know that's really tangential, <laughs> but that, that definitely could be a 60s... <laughs> kind of secret indication she's yeah, a lesbian. Yeah, yeah. She also runs a flying school and it's clear her type is young blonde girls because they're all young blonde girls that fly her planes. Is that a thing with yeah. her though or do you think that's just the movie being like, we need all blonde girls? No, I think, like I say, I think this is part of the theory that she is a lesbian and that's mm-hmm. why I find it funny that Bond basically tries to rape her at one point and then, but but then she gets into it. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so Goldfinger puts him on his private plane, Pussy Galore is piloting it, and sends him uh, unconscious to his stud farm, because he's yep. a horse guy, Sure. Uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, which is a famous horse racing town. Now, I have to make a, a quick mention here. Uh, a little bit about me. My dad is a farrier. My dad shoes horses for a living. Like, that's what he's done. He does for, what? He shoes horses for a living. You said he shoots horses no, for a living. It's come up a lot over the years. No, no. Shoes horses. Okay. Puts new shoes on them. <laughs> Guys, Jason's dad does not shoot horses. I mean, he could, life. I'm sure. He, 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 he could handle it. But, but he doesn't make money based no. on a per horse No, he shot. shoes horses. Much, uh, uh, a blacksmith would have been what you would call, though that's not accurate. He's a farrier. So, yeah, no. So, so my, my whole family... Uh, on my dad's side, and even on my mom's side too, have been involved in horse racing for a lot of years. And the type of horse racing they're involved in is called harness racing. And what harness racing is, like when you think of horse racing, you normally think of harness racing, or you, you think of like thoroughbred racing. You think of like little jockeys on the back of horses running around the track like that. But my family was involved in harness racing. And what harness racing is, is that rather than having a rider on the back of the horse, they have a sulky, like a cart that is attached to the horse, and you, you drive the horse from the sulky. And in this movie, when they go to Goldfinger's farm, it shows the training track, and there are a couple guys with sulkies training the horses around the track. And I was so excited to see that. So rarely in movies where harness racing is, or horse racing is discussed, do they ever show harness racing. And Baltimore was a big harness racing town, and still is to a lot of, uh, I believe. So, just a shout out to the filmmakers for doing that that's really this, cool this part really spoke to you yeah it really did it really did it was cool guy, to see i don't know if guy hamilton is still alive but to the estate of guy hamilton jason thanks you i thank you guy so <laughs> so they take him but they lock him up in in his basement or whatever goldfinger's ba- dungeon he has like a fucking dungeon in his just basement. already built there yeah already built his just dungeon in case there. he ever has to capture a british spy but james bond being james bond brendan he escapes he escapes his dumb little cell and he eavesdrops and he eavesdrops and he, and he learns the purpose of operation grand slam as With- goldfinger explains to a bunch of mafia guys and his plan (laughs) is to get in there and rob uh, Fort Fort Knox and take out all the gold. What I gotta say too, though, the representation of the American mafia guys yeah. is hilarious. Oh yeah, what do we do with you? Well, no, and that, like all the ADR, like when when the room is moving and stuff, like you can hear just like the, the lines are clearly dubbed in later. It's like, well, the floor is moving. Oh, what is this? A merry-go-round? Yeah, what is this? Oh, yeah. What are you doing, fella? Oh, rhubarb, rhubarb. Yeah. So, so Goldfinger explains, yeah, they're, they're going to rob Fort Knox of the gold, and they're going to do that by sending Pussy Galore and her flying circus. Pussy Galore's flying circus. I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. when I saw that, I was like, "Is that where Monty Python got no. the name from?" Because it was in the same fucking font. You're right. 
But and no, it, this came before. Yeah, no. Uh, where Monty Python got that name from, and where Goldfinger got that name from, was from World War One because okay. that was the name of the the squadron, essentially, of the Baron Manfred von Richthofen, aka the Red Baron. It was the Red Baron's flying circus. So, so they both got it from the same place. Yeah, and and the reason, and a little trivia for you while we're on the topic, the reason <laughs> it was called the Flying Circus was because often to transport the squadron rather than flying them they would actually take the planes break them down and put them on a train and ship them to uh, where the aerodrome was so it was kind of like a circus being broke down and put onto a train so that's why it's called a flying circus okay uh yeah so it's a little bit of trivia for all you guys out there so so pussy galore and her flying pussies are going to (laughs) fly over fort knox and they're going to dump something called Delta 9 nerve gas across the base. You give me such a visual. <laughs> I'm happy to help. Flying pussies. Um, so he, he learns that, but in the course of learning that, Pussy shows up and captures Bond again. Uh, and Goldfinger goes and, I guess, tests the gas out and kills all the mafia. Well, not all the mafia guys. Most of the mafia guys, except for one. Who then leaves, uh, and Bond shoves a note in his pocket, trying to get word out that what's going on. And the tracker, I think, too. And the tracker. But uh, Oddjob uh, takes this mafioso out down a dirt road and executes him in the car. And, so. then, and then crushes the car. And then crushes the car. He goes, Oddjob does not, see, that's the thing. As far as Bond henchman goes, we got to give it up for Oddjob, because he's one of the most competent henchmen that I think is in a James Bond yeah. movie. He murders like many people. Yeah, and and does it and does it without saying anything but ha ha. That's literally all he says. Shout out to Harold Sakata. Yeah. Sakata, great performance. Was he a pro wrestler, or was that the guy that was in? Uh, I mean, uh, he was Gold the inspiration member. for a pro wrestler. Yeah, no, nah, no, but I mean, I I feel like he may have been an old timey pro wrestler. I don't know. I have to look into him sometime. So Bond at some point points out that stealing all that gold from Fort Knox would be pretty much impossible given the amount of time that he would expect the, you know, other armed services to... I do have this. ...to intervene. So Yeah, yeah I do have this little and... clip. Because I like this clip because it, it rarely in a Bond movie, I find, like, at least now, do you have the villain really one-upping Bond. Mm. And it really happens in this scene, you can hear. You disappoint me, Goldfinger. You know Operation Grand Slam simply won't work. Incidentally, Delta-9 nerve gas is fatal. You are unusually well-informed, Mr. Bond. You kill 60,000 people uselessly. American motorists kill that many every two years. Yes, well, I've worked out a few statistics of my own. $15 billion in gold bullion weighs 10,500 tons. 60 men would take 12 days to load it onto 200 trucks. Now, at the most, you're going to have two hours before the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines move in and make you put it back. Who mentioned anything about removing it? Ah, so there's the rub. Turns out that Goldfinger's plan is not to steal the gold, Brendan. His plan is he has obtained a cobalt-based nuclear bomb, which in colloquial terms is a dirty bomb. From the Mafia. From the mob, yeah, from the mafia. Oh, yeah. right. So that's why. They, okay, so that they, makes they sense. He kills box. the mafia to tie up loose ends because they got him the bomb. Yeah, because they sent him a box called machine parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you know much about nuclear physics, Brendan, but a cobalt, oh, tons. a cobalt bomb. Uh, basically, if if you see a nuclear bomb with cobalt bomb, you'll generally get a, a lower explosive yield. But what you will do is allow fallout to stick around for way longer than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so the purpose of a dirty bomb is to irradiate an area. So fifty eight years. Yeah, in this case, fifty eight years. That yeah. will deny that to anybody else. And so, <laughs> Goldfinger's strange plan, which I don't fully understand because he loves gold, but 
He uh, so essentially by irradiating the gold in Fort Knox, it makes it useless, and then I guess theoretically that would then drive the price of all the rest of the gold that wasn't irradiated in the world up, and okay. thus Goldfinger would be richer. Yeah, and Goldfinger, but Goldfinger doesn't give a shit. He's like, well, if I don't even even if I don't get to blow the bomb up here, I'll just blow it up wherever if they stop it. So I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. He's a very, I mean, it's never indicated that he is a Nazi in the movie, but. I bet you he made some money off the Nazis. Oh, well, he was excited about the Nazis. He was very excited about the Nazis. Well, but that's because he loves gold. Yeah, but, you know, he probably knew that was Nazi gold. So now we we are at the beginning of... We are at the initiation of Operation Grand Slam. Pussy Galore and her flying circus are dumping gas all over the base. Left. You don't want to skip the barn scene right before that. Oh, did did I miss the barn scene? Yeah. Well, I thought that was afterwards. Uh, Where where they're spraying Fort Knox? No, it's definitely before that. Okay, well... So, oh, I mentioned that. Yeah, so they have a scene in the barn where uh, uh, they're literally rolling around in the hay, judoing each other, and and I forget, what was the point of that scene? Why were Uh, they there? I don't know, but James Bond basically rapes her. Yeah, he basically just starts to try to fuck her, and she's not into it, but then she gets into it because it was the 60s, and that's what happened. It's uh, weird. In movies. So, yeah, it's very strange. Um it's like the resist, but then yeah. give in thing. It's yeah, like, exactly, exactly. Doesn't fly exactly. anymore. Not, not so much. It's a uh, uh, hashtag James Bond. Well, Pussy Galore does fly. Her she plane does fly. That her is. plane that is, and she flies it over the base. And her and her and her flying pussies. They go and they dump the gas all over the base and knock everybody out. And I assume kill them. <laughs> the flying uh, pussies spray everyone. They spray everyone. And one of those people that gets knocked out and killed is Felix Leiter because we see his dead body laying in the car there. Um, so at that point, the the gold. Okay, I didn't mention this fact, but all of Goldfinger's henchmen are Asian, because he's 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 dealing with the Chinese with government. the Chinese government. So I guess that means that the Chinese government provides him with a workforce. Yeah, and, as one but, would. But isn't Ajab Korean? I think Ajab was already his his uh, yeah, assistant, his manservant, if you will. Manservant. His, maybe he was his valet. Maybe he also helps Goldfinger dress. That's what I'd like to think. He was the guy that picked out that little short shorts and gold uh, well, le- leisure suit. I got a little bit of a homoerotic vibe from Goldfinger, I gotta say. Mr. Goldfinger! But then again, he, he did seem to be kind of into pussy galore. It was so. just because he was European, and in those days, European meant gay. <laughs> European meant yeah. whatever. However, so this all goes down, Goldfinger sends in his crew, they're all dressed up as soldiers, they go in, they start doing their business. But, uh, turns out that by basically raping pussy galore... Uh, Bond had had turned her, and she uh, was the one that let the CIA and, and MI6 know what was going on. So we find that all the soldiers that were allegedly dead are now not. Uh, yeah. They all stand up. So was my question is then, they, obviously they switched out the gas. Yeah, they just didn't dump any gas. But, well, no, she dumped something. Because okay. there's something yeah, going on dry ice or something. I don't but know. like my question is, so then is everyone just acting? Yeah, because that is some convincing. Oh yeah, no, it's good. It's good acting by, the, by the, all the military. Fort Knox is kind of uh, it's like the theater camp of the U.S. Army. <laughs> what? Yeah, absolutely. So um, okay. So yeah, so the knocked out men they all rise up and they attack Goldfinger's man and it turns into like a running gun battle on the base because everybody's fighting everybody else. Goldfinger is in the mix. He's trying to get away. He, he a, like, knocks out a, a, a U.S. Army colonel. He has a uniform. And steals his uniform, yeah. Oh, I thought he just had one. I think he stole it from someone, didn't he? I don't know, man. I thought, like, he just... When when they're shooting, I thought mm. Goldfinger just ran away, took off his shirt, and he had one underneath. Oh, maybe he did. Maybe maybe that was his plan, in case something was fall back. So, so, yeah. Um, Goldfinger steals that colonel's uniform, or puts it on or whatever and Bond is fighting with Oddjob great down scene where so Bond has been handcuffed to the bomb yep 
but he ends up having a fight with Oddjob. That's a, that's that is honestly, I think that's my favorite. Yeah, song. it's a great it's a great fight. Oh, I wanted to say this because we kind of we talked about a lot of the fighting in this movie. Yeah. What I really like about this movie, it's not slick, it's yeah. not glossy. No, the fighting is like scrappy. It's very, and it's very, it's almost it's realistic. Yeah, and it, and it is in line with the the. James Bond of the novels, where James Bond of the novels is, is much more described as a brute of yeah. a man and I how mean, he, he operates. He still is a very suave man, mm. but when you get to the scenes where he's scrapping with people yeah. like Odd Job or any of the henchmen, even yeah. at the beginning, when they had that fight at the beginning with yeah. the dude in the bathtub, yeah. all of that is very like dirty and grungy and not really it's well. It's two people fucking struggling with each other. Yeah, it's, it, not, it's, it's not two guys having like a cowboy bar fight. Yeah, and I don't want to say like the judo fight is the exa- example I would use to counter that mm. with the choreograph thing. Yeah. It looks choreographed but it's choreographed in the way to make it look not choreographed. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, exactly. And I think I kind of appreciate that more in this it, movie. And it's the, the, the Al Snow thing of like you got to take it to the mat to make it look real. What? Yeah, yeah. I'll know. And he's talking about teaching wrestling. You know that you got to take it to the mat. Oh, like make it look like it's a real fight. Yeah, make it look like it's a real fight. It, it, it um, uh, like in uh, They Live, Roddy yeah. Piper and Keith yeah. David have that. Put, put on fight. the glasses. You know, they yeah. had the best fight in history. Best. Um. Anyway, so, I just wanted to say that. So, so they they have a great fight, but then Bond uh knocks Oddjob into uh electrified grate. He throws his hat. Oddjob throws his hat and misses. It lands yeah. in the fence. Oddjob goes to grab it, and he, he's also cut this wire. Yeah. And at the same time as he goes to grab his hat, Bond takes the wire and sticks it to the fence, yeah. and he basically gets electrocuted. Electrocutes Oddjob. By the way, in real life, he was very badly burned. Oh no! While they were doing the scene, wait, Harold 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 Sakata. However, he did not let go because he was that. Such he was that committed. Pro. He's a professional, and I think that's the shot in the movie. Nice. So there you go. Wasn't in vain, Harold. Um, yeah. So he kills him, uh, and then Bond attempts to begin defusing this nuclear bomb. But this is one of those funny things about this movie: is that Bond is so little agency in this movie. Really, he really doesn't do a lot. He really doesn't actually do a lot. He's there for a lot of it, but then he goes to try to disarm the bomb, and then some nuclear scientist comes in out of nowhere and presses a button. He's like, "Huh, I got it." Literally, like an off switch. Off switch. Literally landing on zero zero seven. <laughs> Da 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 da. So, uh, so Bond goes and gets on the plane with Pussy, and they're on the plane. They're heading back to Washington. Everything's fine, right? Everything is fine, but no, it's not fine because Goldfinger was hiding on the plane, and, he and killed, they get into a fight, and he kills Bond. The end. But no, no, you saw a different version. Oh, okay. What actually happened was they get into a fight, and earlier in the movie they had mentioned how if you shot a gun in the plane, you could cause some decompression and cause a problem. Well. Bond remembers that and shoots out the window and the window blows out and there is an explosive decompression like they had fucking been spacing him out of a goddamn spaceship. Like, I, he, it's just like, boom! And there's like, ah! And they're getting sucked out like it's crazy. Like, it's nuts how how ridiculous this is. But Goldfinger gets sucked out the window. I, I'm sorry, but I gotta say, the, there's one shot during the scene that made me laugh so hard. And it's just like Goldfinger kind of flying through the air. Yeah, in the, it was in a clearly the, in the matted shot. Yeah. yeah. And then somehow he gets sucked through that tiny window. Tiny little window, yeah. They haul Gert Frobe's big old ass through that tiny little he's, window. He's conservatively a 300 pound Yeah, man. he's a big dude. And then, yeah, he gets sucked out. And then the plane starts to crash. And Pussy and James, they bail out and parachute down. And the movie ends with Felix in a helicopter looking for them. Pussy is waving in the air trying to get their attention. But, uh, nope. 
uh, James is like, nope, we're gonna fuck, and then he's, or actually, I think he says something, uh, what does he this say? Is not a, this is no time for a rescue. This is no time for a rescue, and then they kiss, and credits. And then it ends with, Goldfinger, and it says, James Bond will return in Thunderball. Which is a fucking boring as shit James Bond oh, movie. Oh, is, is that a hot take? No, that's a, I think that's a pretty standard thing. The problem with Thunderball is that so much of the fighting takes place underwater, and it's really slow. Oh. It, it's almost as bad as Moonraker, where they're fighting in space like they're fighting underwater. Moonraker starring Ben Affleck? That, well, that's a good one. No, that's a classic. But no, the Moonraker, which is based loosely on the book in that it is not really based on the book at is, all. Is the theme Moonraker? I think so, yeah. Uh, but Jason, now that we've kind of gone through this movie, let's talk a little bit about the background on this film. Sure. So Sean Connery uh, did six Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he did Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, and Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, wait, but let's not forget the unofficial Bond movie, well, which is the, a remake of Thunderball called Never Say Never he's Again. He did six official Bond Six movies. official, one unofficial. But um, I just wanted to say that James Bond himself is actually ranked number three on the AFI's list of the top 100 film heroes of hmm. all time. Is Henry V number one? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Um, but I don't think, okay, so I don't think any of his Bond movies were received over, like, like super, like, poorly. I'm no. not saying that they were all glowing achievements, but I think this was probably easily the most well-received one. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, it, uh, part of it is the establishment of that formula. It, it's a, it's a spy story. Like, he's doing spy shit in this movie. And uh, cont- I'm talking contemporary. I'm not talking like revisionist. It's seen as one of the best ones at the time. Oh, it was seen I think as it's the I think it's a combination one. of things. I think it's 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 the performance from Gert Frobe as well as 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 uh, James Bond himself, Sean Connery. Um, I think it's the fact that it has some gadgets in it, which wasn't you know like they were really establishing a formula for the secret agent movie that really didn't exist before then. Um, and I think people like that. They like that idea. To see all those cool gadgets and, yeah. and a guy just take, kicking ass and taking care of business. Because this was at the height of the Cold War, you know? Which is um, uh, why I'm kind of surprised that Russia wasn't the villain and it was China. Well, I'll tell you, I actually learned a little bit about this reading up on, on the books and stuff. Um, Ian Fleming originally, in the first few James Bond novels, kind of focused on Smirsh. It was a group called Smirsh mm-hmm. that, uh, that was like a Russian... Uh, like criminal enterprise. Well, yeah, but associated with the Soviet Union, and as we know from Russia with Love, was dealt with that stuff. But I think Ian Fleming thought that, well, you know, like there's going to be a point where this shit's all done, and if it's all Cold War stuff, it's not going to hold up. Yeah. So that's why so, eventually so he, thought, he thought ahead of time. He was very, yeah, he was thinking about pretty timeliness. Ahead of time. Yeah. So that's why when not in this movie, but later Bond movies, we start to see Spectre. Yeah. Uh, with uh, what was his name? Uh, Oh, what's the guy's name? The bald guy that runs Spectre. Oh, Fucking uh, Blofeld. Blofeld, yeah, yeah. Where we start to see Blofeld as an enemy rather than Russia specifically, mm-hmm. so that it would be a little more timeless. Basically the inspiration for Dr. Evil. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The liter- literal outfit, literal like look with cat. the bald, the cat. Yeah, everything. Dr. Evil is, is Blofeld with Lord <laughs> Michael's voice. <laughs> yes, I say, yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about Ian Fleming, because Ian Fleming is obviously the author of all mm-hmm. these Bond uh books yes. originally now i know some of the movies were not books now we got we got into the point where we're making new movies mm-hmm. we're not we're not based on books anymore but ian fleming uh just a little bit about his kind of biography so he had a father that died in the war and his the father first was war. the first war and his father was even to the point where he was commemorated by winston churchill himself wow um 
Ian went to, now this is what I kind of thought was interesting. So Ian Fleming went to Eton College. Yeah. He was not liked by his housemaster. This is what it says. Who disapproved of his attitude, his hair oil, <laughs> and his casual relations with women. Now, who does that sound like? Hmm. Uh, we know how James Bond is known for his hair oil. <laughs> right. That's, that's what I meant. Um, unlike James Bond, though, unlike something James Bond might do, he actually did get engaged. Mm-hmm. But his mother forced him to call it off. I'd heard that story before. We were back yeah. in the day of when that happened. Um, there was a very interesting thing he did during the war known as Operation Ruthless. Mm-hmm. And that was a plan aimed at obtaining details of the Enigma codes yeah. used by used by Nazi Germany. Um, it was instigated by a memo he wrote. So basically his plan was to obtain a German bomber, mm-hmm. man it with a German-speaking crew, yeah. and crash it into the English Channel. Uh, then so then the crew would then attack their German rescuers when they came out to see oh we had a you know a crashed German te- mm. uh, fleet um, they would attack the German rescuers and bring their boat and the Enigma machine back to England. Uh, unfortunately, that plan they said would not work because if they said if you crash into the English Channel there'd be a lot of other factors. Alan Turing himself, yeah. who developed eventually developed the the. Um, and, uh, he cracked the Enigma code. He cracked the Enigma code. Was actually very upset that this play never happened because it would have helped him a great deal if it had worked. Um, but look, here's the thing. We all know history. We all know that John Bon Jovi fucking got the Enigma machine and everything was cool. U571? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not not historically accurate in the least. <laughs> Coming soon on BFI. <laughs> um, so in May of 1941, this is crazy, okay? The war had just begun. The Germans had the biggest ship that had the biggest gun. The Bismarck was the fastest ship that ever sailed the sea. But also what happened... Oh, okay. ...is that Ian Fleming went to the United States where he assisted in writing a blueprint for the Office of the Coordinator of Information, the department that turned into the Office of Strategic Services and eventually became the the CIA. CIA. Yep. With Wild Bill. He was under Wild Bill. Isn't that crazy? Wild Bill Godfrey, yeah. Yep. The C- Ian Fleming yeah. is basically one of the people responsible oh, yeah. for the creation of the CIA. He was also involved in one of the crazier operations of the war. I don't know if you mentioned it there, but Operation Mincemeat. So Operation Mincemeat, I just briefly say, was he was involved in this operation. And what it was is they basically took the the body of a, of a dead Welshman, uh, like a, a homeless guy, and they they took him, they cut his hair and like made him look nice, put him in a uniform. They uh, cuffed a briefcase to his hands... With invasion plans for, I think it was supposed to be like Sardinia or something, and they dumped them in the channel. And the uh, the part of it was trying to convince it was misinformation trying to convince the Germans that the Allies were going to invade at a specific spot, which I think was like Sardinia, and, and instead they were actually going to go through Sicily. So the Germans found this body somehow and had the information, and Hitler believed it strongly enough that he kept his forces in kind of Greece and Sardinia for most of the war, waiting for this attack that never came. Hmm. Yeah, so that was a crazy plan that helped bolster the war effort uh, uh, and helped us win that war. So thank you, Sir Ian Fleming, for doing that. (laughs) Thank you to the estate of Sir Ian Fleming. And then years later, writing Quantum of Solace. Going to James Bond himself, yep. Fleming actually took the name for this character from an American ornithologist named yep. James Bond, uh, who was an expert on Caribbean birds. Um, Fleming was also a keen bird watcher. Yeah. And he basically said, when I wrote the first book in 1953, I wanted Bond to be an extremely dull, uninteresting man 
to whom things happened. I wanted him to be a blunt instrument. When I was casting around for a name for my protagonist, I thought, by God, James Bond is the dullest name I've ever heard. Uh, Bond was also a, a composite of all the secret agents and commando types that Fleming met during the war. Mm-hmm. Now, this is kind of cool, too. So, he based a lot of character names in his books on people from his real life. So, in the movie The Man with the Golden Gun, Scaramanga Mm. is named after a schoolboy that he constantly fought with. I wonder if uh, that schoolboy also had a third nipple. (laughs) I don't don't remember (laughs) that movie. I don't even know if I've seen that movie. Uh, Goldfinger is actually named after a British architect named Erno Goldfinger, whose work Fleming hated. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, And the last thing I just want to say about Ian Fleming, because, I mean, we got to talk about this movie... Uh, his last words as he before he died, I mean, this is, you know, could be urban legend, whatever. But while he was in the ambulance, his last words were apparently, I'm sorry to trouble you chaps. I don't know how you get along so fast with the traffic on the road these days. <laughs> that does sound like an Ian Fleming thing to and say. And then he died. And then he died. Uh, let's talk about the, um, let's talk about the classic opening sequence. So you mm. talked about, this is the first, I think it, I'm swear it happens in Dr. No. It definitely happens in Dr. No. I haven't I haven't seen Dr. No in a lot of years. I so. mean, th- now, Dr. No doesn't have a um, theme song. I mean, they use Three Blind Mice, which is not really like a Bond theme. What a strange choice. Uh, but the classic opening sequence of the gun, it was designed by a guy named Mor- Maurice Binder mm-hmm. for the first Bond film. So it actually was, it was in the first one. Uh, but what he originally planned to do was put a camera down the barrel of a thirty-eight caliber gun. Yeah. But obviously this caused some problems. Um, basically, it wouldn't he couldn't get the entire gun barrel to come into focus. So what he did was he created a pinhole camera, and the barrel became crystal clear. He said, it was something I did in a hurry, because I had to get to a meeting with the producers in 20 minutes. Hmm. I just happened to have little white price tag stickers, and I thought I'd use them as gunshots across the screen. We'd have James Bond walk through and fire, at which point blood comes down. Da- comes down on screen that was about a 20 minute storyboard i did and they said this looks great (laughs) nice apparently also when he shoots at the camera anytime you see something like that where someone's shooting at the camera at the audience it's a reference to an old movie from like 1903 oh the great train robbery yeah yeah yeah, Ned Kelly shooting at the screen and and the the legend being that people like ran into the theater scared because they thought which probably isn't true people were stupid in 1900 brendan i don't think it's true <laughs> they were really fucking stupid uh this film ended up having the biggest budget for a bond movie thus far three million so i mean not a lot then but of the three bond uh, movies I mean, that have been made it had the biggest budget sorry not a lot now yeah. a lot then yeah um it was more than the previous two films combined wow. hmm. So, this is the first Bond film, too, where they especially went, wanted to go after the American audience. So that's yeah. why you have things like in Miami, Baltimore. It's a lot more than the last two movies. Making Felix a prominent character. Yeah. Um, uh, another kind of cool thing here. So, there's a scene in the movie. We, we played the clip earlier where Bond yeah. kind of tells him, like, you can't empty the gold in Fort Knox. Like, blah, 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 blah. You'd have to go through all this. In the book, he does it that way. Oh, he doesn't use the nuclear bomb. So in the book, he actually just takes the gold out of Fort Knox. And I guess when they made the movie, they were like, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's ridiculous things that happen in Bond, but they were like, no, no, that like goes past the brooch of what we want to do. Yeah. So they actually just wrote that scene where Bond is making fun of that. Yeah. Which is idea. great. I, I love, though, that their idea of ri- ridiculousness is like, it's, it's ridiculous that a man would have 200 trucks in 12 days to put gold on. Like, that's insane. And then we think about, like, where, how ridiculous, like, Moonraker got, or... <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it, not at that, at least it wasn't a thought at that point yet. <laughs> um, there was a, uh, a lot of discussion on the opening scene. 
So in the book, it doesn't open with like a random unconnected like a cold, scene. Cold open? No, no. Why yeah. would it open with a cold open in a book? It actually opens with him contemplating his recent killing of a Latin American drug smuggler while waiting at the Miami airport. So it actually goes right into the main story. Um, another writer suggested opening with the scene of Odd Job crushing the car containing the gangster, hmm. which I think would have been a little weird. Yeah, but ultimately. You can credit Paul Dane, who uh, trivia, little trivia. He wrote a lot of the of the Apes movies. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, he came up with the idea of a pre-credit sequence that had nothing to do with the rest of the movie, which then became a blueprint for Standard. basically every yeah. Bond film to follow. Little, almost like a little short film to whet our appetite before we get into the main Bond film feature. I mean, yeah, I mean, I have so I have so much. Like, I just want to get a couple more things because yep. there's a lot, but. This movie was huge, Jason. Yeah, it was big. Huge. $3 million it cost, okay? Mm -hmm. Worldwide, it made $125 million. That's a lot of money today. That is a profit and a half. Yeah. (laughs) That is huge. That is almost... That was almost 50 times. It's like a 500% profit. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. I don't know math. More than that. Way more 5,000%. I don't know. Math math nerds, you tell me. But the sheer number of people. So the premiere was huge, obviously. Mm. And the sheer number of people that attended that premiere was so enormous that they broke the glass doors of the cinema. (laughs) And the film was delayed 10 minutes to the confusion of everyone. That, but that also, I guess that must be a, an indicator of how popular Dr. No and From Rush With Love were. Did you know yeah. that Gert Frobe uh-huh. was a Nazi? Was he? <laughs> a liter- literal Nazi. Gert Frobe joined the Nazi party in 1929. Oh, before when he was, it was cool. When Actually. he was six. <laughs> Good lord. When he was 16 years old and left the party in 1937. Oh, so he bailed before... Okay, so yeah, he bailed before it got too too hot. Well, here's the thing. Israel actually banned any films he was in for quite a long time just because of his association yeah. with the Nazi party until a, a Jewish survivor revealed their story that Frobe actually hid them from the Nazis during the war. Wow. So in September of 1944, the Nazis closed down theaters in Germany, and he was drafted into the German army. Mm. Even though he left in 37, he was drafted in 44. So, so he was back in Germany? Or yeah. he was still in Germany? He, he was didn't in leave Germany. Germany. Okay. Where he served for the remainder of World War II, so from 1944 and on. Was he on the Eastern Front or the Western Front? I don't know. <laughs> We'll, we'll assume it was the Western Front since he survived. Um, also in this film, like I said, he was dubbed by a stage actor named Michael Collins. And <gasps> Wait, you mean the, the, the guy who went to the moon, Michael Collins? I don't think so. No. You mean the Irish revolutionary who died in 1922, Michael no, Collins? Absolutely not. Oh. Uh, but yeah, so he had to say his lines at twice the speed because he was saying them phonetically. And I already talked about how the actors kind of found that difficult. Hmm. Goldfinger. Shall we do a deep dive? Should we deep dive? Deep dive in the Goldfinger. We haven't deep dived yet. Oh, we haven't deep dove yet, my All friend. All right, well, let's go. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about how this came out the year before Dr. Zhivago. Okay. It's a weird thing to say, but the reason I bring it up is because the risque kind of near nudity type stuff, like, I mean, Jill is almost completely, yeah. she's completely naked. We don't see it all, but you know she had to get yeah. completely naked for that shot. And I think that must have been a little bit of a shock for audiences back in 1964. Yeah. I mean, we weren't we're just... used to seeing skin to that extent, even if it was covered in gold paint that was suffocating. Oh, this movie is very tame now. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But I think in 1964, that must oh, yeah. have been very provocative. Yeah. Well, there probably were dudes beaten off in the back of the theater to this movie. <laughs> okay. We, we, a big, a big thing. I mean, we kind of already talked about a little bit with the Barnes scene. We need yeah. to talk about James Bond's treatment of women. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, the first the first thing I I, I wrote down is the, uh, the where he's just getting a massage at the beginning of the movie. Felix Leiter is like introduced to the movie, mm-hmm. which also I want to say too, it's a cool way to introduce Felix Leiter for people who may maybe not know who he is. Because mm. it, it t- see to me what I like about the Bond movies. I know this is just going all over the place, but what I really like about the Bond movies, especially the early ones, is that you can jump into any Bond movie. Yeah, and you don't need to have seen the rest. No, not at I all. feel like now. Maybe if you jumped into like Quantum of Solace, you would have needed to see like Casino Royale. That's a specific case, though. That's yeah, a special it's it's case. well, yeah, it's not really the same. Yeah, it's and re- and it's... if if you were gonna watch, um, I guess uh, uh, Spectre, Sp- no, Sky not Fall. Spectre. Uh, shit, what is the uh, the one with George Lazenby? What was that? Oh, oh Honor Majesty. Yeah, if you're gonna watch Honor Majesty's Secret Service, you would do well to see the previous movie, which was. Diamonds are forever. I think you're or, right. Anyways, because that that because uh, the movie uh, oh, oh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service opens up with Bond over the grave of the woman he was going to marry. Okay, I didn't know about that. Yeah, which and he also it. says this never happened to the other fella. Yeah, <laughs> which, by the way, I I don't care. I love that part. <laughs> I don't care how meta it is. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, going back to the Bond's treatment yeah. of women thing, we get a massage uh, by a, just a name a nameless lady at the beginning and. <laughs> As, as he gets up, he's like, this is Felix Leiter. All right, get out. Man it's, talk. It's man talk, baby, and he slaps her on the ass. <laughs> yeah, butt slap. And, I mean, we talked about the barn and how he basically... I mean, he basically forces himself yeah. on... I don't think there's any question. From With 2019 eyes, that's what he does. Uh, later, There's also a scene with Jill where he's on the phone, and he literally just, like, pie-faces her out of mm. his way. It, it, I mean, these are, Bond, these are James Bond movies, guys. He... It's just... It, it, I don't I, see. I don't want to be the person that says like it was just the time because no. that sounds so dismissive. But that's how these movies are. That's and that's, they yeah, that's they how they portrayed men back then. Those 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 types of heroes, heroes, quote unquote. They definitely progressed though. Yeah, I think he's less of a a piece of shit now. If I I, I I'd have to go back and read more of the books, but I think if they were more keeping in line with James Bond being kind of a brutish character, the less of a hero, then that would have made more sense in the movies. But obviously, they wanted you know it was the '60s. You can't have like a an antihero or somebody who's not totally you can be on board with as the as the hero of the movie. So even though James Bond slapping women and doing whatever, that was just what they did back then, right? Did you know that Sean Connery actually had a really hard time uh, finding not? work after the Bond oh, movies? I was going to say not slapping the women? <laughs> no. Well, now that you bring that up, yeah. we might as well... Let's, let's listen to a little bit of Sean Connery talk about uh, yeah. life. Well, well, I mean, we talked about how Bond treats women. Let's listen to how Sean Connery thinks it's uh, alright to treat women. I, this is not a laugh. I know Sean Connery regrets this conversation. Okay. You did an interview in which you said, it's not the worst thing to slap a woman now and then. As I remember, you said you don't do it with a clenched fist. It's better to do it with an open hand. Mm. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't love that. I haven't changed my opinion. You haven't? No. Not at all. You think it's good to slap a woman? No, I don't think it's good. You I don't think, think it's bad? Must, I don't think it's that bad. I think that it depends entirely on the circumstances and if it merits it. Yeah. What would merit it? Well, if you have tried everything else, and women are pretty good at this, that they can't leave it alone. Yeah? They don't they want to have the, the, the last word, and you give them the last, last word, but they're not happy with the last word. They want to say it again and, and get into a really provocative situation. Then I think it's absolutely right. Manly men. Manly men. We're manly men. Men, men, men. 
Um, anyway, hold on. I gotta so yeah, this. don't take your domestic uh, uh, advice from Sean Connery, I guess is our ultimate point. No, and yeah, I, I just wanted to say, like, as much as Bond is kind of problematic, I think Connery might be worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think Bond slapped a woman in this movie, did he? I mean, he pie faces one, yeah. he slaps her ass, he yeah. almost rapes someone. I think that's worse. But he doesn't hit anybody. He doesn't. He's not violent. <laughs> he rapes her to burn. Yeah, but she gets into it. That's different. Okay, it's okay now. Yeah, if, if she gets into it, then it's fine, right? <laughs> Guys, Jason, this is not a video podcast. You better tell the folks that you are being sarcastic. So the, what you do is uh, you just you just go for it, and eventually. Hi, I am Jason, and I don't agree with anything I previously said. Jason died on the way back to his home planet. Do you know what else makes its debut in this movie, What's Jason? That? Shaken, not stirred. Oh, this is the first time he says first it. First time he says it. Huh. Was in Goldmember. Really? Yeah. Goldfinger. Goldfinger. I told you. Yeah, I knew it was going to happen. I fucking told you it was going to fucking happen. God damn it. Allow me to introduce myself. Or has he got Allow myself to, to introduce... introduce Myself. myself, I don't know. That's game to my mind. <laughs> I, I gotta say too, like um, for a movie with a with a character named Pussy Galore, like mm. fuck, like yeah. you can't get any more overt. Well, that but, was, but that was so explicit that it that it came back around that it wasn't explicit in 1964. Because because if you tried to name a character Pussy Galore today, they'd give your movie an NC-17 rating, well, and they almost didn't get away with it. I will <laughs> say that in the states, they almost dubbed it with a different name. Yeah. But what I wanted to say is, like, for a character named Pussy Galore, mm. she's a pretty strong female yeah, character. Yeah, she's definitely one of the stronger Bond girls, especially in the early era of James Bond. And, and I think it maybe helps a bit that she's a little bit older and wiser. Yeah. But I think it's also because she's a lesbian. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, be, I'm not joking. You, I'm being legit. You know that she's... So she's played by Honor Blackman, yeah. who actually was from the Avengers TV series. Oh, did she play is, the later, like, after Emma... After uh, What's-Her-Face left, uh... uh Oh God! Emma, played Emma Peel, you know I, Diana Rigg. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, she. I think she replaced Diana. I, I know she was from the Avengers TV series, yeah. which I just think is fascinating because Sean Connery went on to star in the shitty in the movie The Avengers, 1998 the series version, yeah, with hot as fuck uh, uh, Uma Thurman in a cat suit and hot as fuck Ray Fiennes, hot off of the English Patient. Oh, that's true. Well, I mean, in two oh years. My yeah, God. he went from the English patient to the Avengers. Yeah, I know that's a bad. I mean, and the English patient was terrible. But uh, is the Avengers better? I guess. No, God, no. Yeah, but the Avengers has Eddie Izzard in it, even if he doesn't say anything. I don't think the English patient was terrible. I think the English patient was. Just but did a, the English a patient a have a villain who was named literally after the, like like the thing that he wanted to do, which was control the weather? His name was Sir August Winter, and I'm going to control the weather. This is this is not on the list at any point, so we should drop no, it. No, the Avengers should the Avengers should be on this list. The nineteen ninety eight Avengers. Yes. Yeah. Um, Do we want to talk about the League of Gentlemen while we're at it? <laughs> no, I don't. Right. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. All oh, right, League of Gentlemen is a British TV series that's completely different. 
Um, I like that this movie doesn't... I like this movie does the villain explaining his plan thing in a way that doesn't feel contrived. Yeah. Because the first time Bond hears about the plan, he overhears Operation Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. And then the more details he hears, he he overhears as well when he's talking to the Chinese uh, henchman, I guess. Yeah. And then... Only at that point, once Bond has basically figured out he's going to rob Fort Knox, yeah. is the point where Goldfinger is like, oh no, this is what I'm going to do. Which totally makes sense, because why not just reveal that last little detail? I mean, you're already because at that point. At that point, he's basically keeping Bond alive to string along MI6 to think that everything's going cool. And you think if everything goes successful, he's just going to kill the guy and dump him out of the plane. You know, or whatever. Question two, I got a question for you. If this plot was done today, it would totally be North Korea, right? Not China? That well, he's working with? Well, I mean, yeah, because it would be the least controversial... Yeah, Asian country to throw in there. Uh, I wrote down that the judo throwing in the farm looked very like I'm just gonna jump off screen. Yeah, <laughs> judo chop. I, I wonder also too, like how played out Fort Knox was as a dev- plot device at this point. Well, because I feel like yeah, because because in in 2019 for sure that was like a cliche th- a trope growing up with Fort Knox being the place where all the gold is, which it is. I don't know that all the gold is there, but they still hold a lot of gold there. Uh, what about Fort Dix? That's a real place. Yeah, they should have used that. I think, Actually, I think there were a lot of gay jokes made about Fort Dix. Uh, I just remember a lot of things that don't age particularly well from Saturday Night Live at about 1980-ish. <laughs> lots of lots of blackface and gay... gay uh... Blackface in 1980? But then again, I guess Soul Man was made in the early 80s with C. Thomas Howell. Oh man, there was blackface in a in an SNL sketch in the nineties. Wow. Jimmy Fallon playing Chris Rock. Ooh. It happened. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I love oh, I do love two two things I want to point out. The uh action cliche where things just blow up immediately yeah. upon contact. Because the the, <laughs> the one thing is kind of not as bad, but it's when the, the Chinese guys are chasing him yeah. and their car careens off the cliff. Yeah. But I mean they don't hit anything and it just blows up. But then the other one is the climax when the plane actually dives into the water yeah. and it just touches the water? Yeah, it, it yeah, just explodes. My 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 beautiful fiance actually said she watched that. She saw that happen. She goes, "That doesn't work like that." <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's a thing that that's almost it was almost like parody level. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was. It was. You you would have expected to see it in an Austin Powers movie that exact scene. Well, Jason. Let's get into the critique of this movie. All right. Because usually, you know, these movies they go to the Oscars. Yeah. It did go to the Oscars. Yeah. It won did an John, Oscar. Did John Barry get a nom? No, and I wanna I wanna say something right now. I'm upset because John Barry did not get a nomination, nor did Shirley Bassey for Best Original Song oh, for Goldfinger. On. That's horseshit. Because at the time, people actually uh didn't like the theme song. I'm not joking. That it was it was it was kind of reviled. Hmm. Quick sidebar. Do you know if Shirley Bassey sang the opening to Life of Brian? The Brian the man they called Brian. I don't know. Because we'll, it sure sounds like her. You know what? Well, I guess we'll find out we'll when find we get out. there. <laughs> you may have just chosen our next movie. Well, we'll see what happens with the dice. So it, it wins for best sound effects. Yeah, well, I mean, it does have okay sound effects sure. in the 60s. But I mean... Kind of tinny. It's weird. So while it doesn't sweep the Oscars or anything, it does become the first Bond film to win an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just the Goldfinger song thing just surprises me. Uh, it was So the movie was praised... Quite fairly well by contemporary critics, mm-hmm. uh, though my fa- and my favorite snippet is from the Sunday Times. It says the movie was superbly engineered. It in it is fast. It is most entertainingly preposterous, and it is exciting. Nice. Roger Ebert 
gave this movie a perfect score. Yep. Four out of four. And it's on his list of the great movies. Should be. Um, before we get to our little wrap them up, mm-hmm. is there anything you want to add about Goldfinger? I just want to say that in, in I think the first thing that you mentioned to me as you'd watch this movie was that this movie fucking moves, and it oh, does. It, this is a fast-paced movie for yeah. 1964. And I think when we get to Goldfinger, uh, not Goldfinger, I think when we get to Dr. No, we'll see how it worked before they had established kind of like what James Bond was, because I feel like that's going to be way more boring than this movie. But I don't want to cast aspersions. We'll get there. But yeah, no, I love this movie. This is rightfully thought of as one of the best James Bond movies, and uh, it holds up. And it is, I mean, despite the things that don't hold up, the movie holds up real well, and and it is, is an absolute recommendation. Okay, well, I want, I'll, I'll, I mean, I guess that's your that's your little wrap up there. Yeah. So I'll say that I mean, this is number seventy. It's lower ranked of the two Bond movies. Again, I don't want to get it super into Doctor No at this point because we will get there. Yeah, and I don't really remember it that much. Yeah, just like I didn't remember this one that yeah. much. But, I mean, where does this stand for me for Bond movies? Well, I could tell you. This is going to be a little bit of a list. But I have seen Dr. No, From Russia With Love, Thunderball, This Movie, You Only Live Twice, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Live and Let Die, View to a Kill, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and I don't remember any of them. You didn't see The Living Daylights? No. Mm. I will say, though, if we're ranking Bonds, I'm going Connery at the top. Uh, No question. I'll go Daniel Craig next. Yeah, I'd say you're probably right. Yeah, no. I, I'm gonna rule out Timothy Dalton because I've never seen it. He's he's a he's a real dark Bond. Like he's a this is this this is this is Timothy Dalton ordering a okay. So so when when Sean Connery orders a vodka martini, he goes I'll have a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. When Timothy Dalton orders a vodka martini, he goes I'll have a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. Like he's got this threatening fucking voice to it. So okay, but uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So I'll go Connery. Yep. I'll go Craig. Sure. I'll go. Brosnan. See, I would go Roger Moore. No, I don't like Roger Moore. <laughs> I do not like it. Well, actually, you know what? Now that I mention that, let's hear what Sean Connery thinks about other Yeah, movies. let's hear what Sean Connery thinks about Roger Moore. I want you to listen to the, what he says about Roger Moore, because it, it, if you at first listen, it seems complimentary, mm-hmm. but just listen to how he says it. Oh, it's a typical Scottish backhand. All right, here we go. I think that the, the fundamental difference is that I... Um, played Bond and and in this one as well with uh, the reality uh, credibility and hopefully still encompassing stunts and effects and what have you but and out of it some indigenous humor and anything that happens is possible and I feel that um, Roger which I think he may have inherited in part from after Diamonds Are Forever, where they were already getting into that area of too much hardware, um, that that was more important, and his is a sort of parody of the character, as it were, in that situation, so that you will go for the laugh or the humor at whatever the cost of the credibility or the reality. I think that's just basically the difference. And um, it's, it's I, I think he t- took another direction with it that way, and acquired uh, an entirely different audience. Yes, you, you both, you, I think you've both got separate followings. No. Um, yeah. you, you'll no doubt be delighted to know that in a recent poll, uh, I think it was 62% of men and 56% of women preferred you as, as James Bond. Well, you, you can't fight intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You can't fight intelligence. Did you notice that though? He's like, well, I mean, for the type of dumb movies that Roger Moore did, he's fine. Yeah, he's he's not a complete waste of space. No, but you see, the thing about those movies is too is that 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 
Like, Roger Moore was the longest tenured James Bond, I think. Like, if you go just by sheer amount of movies he did, mm-hmm. uh, he was definitely the longest tenured James Bond. And those early movies... Wait, not, to, not George Lazenby? Yeah, no. Oh, I should say... Sorry. Connery, Craig, Brosnan, Lazenby, Moore. Okay, you're silly. Nope. I mean, George Lazenby was okay. I but, hate Roger Moore's Bond. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, go on. But that's the thing. If you watch the early Moores, like if you watch Live and Let Die. I did. And, I did uh, care for him. I believe Live and Let Die and uh, what's the other one? Man with the Golden Gun. Sure. Like, those are the early ones. I think he's much more closer to uh, uh, Connery's Bond. Don't like but him. by the time you get to Moonraker and fucking A View to a Kill, he's complete cartoon oh no those are the ones the ones you mentioned that were the best I've seen them I don't like him I just don't they're not Moonraker's terrible no the ones you mentioned that he's like yeah well that's okay you're wrong no I'm you're wrong that's fine you can be wrong Brendan and we're not gonna hold it against you because you've been right about other things and uh anyway what were we saying uh so that was James Bond yes oh right I was gonna finish up my thing here yeah finish your thing up uh yeah so I don't really remember a lot of them I guess I kind of remember Casino Royale more than most of them um and Quantum of Solace was like a really weird Bond movie it was like a revenge movie but uh this one definitely sticks out to me as being like a strong movie and like it's got the blueprint of the Bond it's crazy that this is the first movie that has the blueprint and kind of nails it right Mm. right out of the gate because I'm sure there's many movies that have many of these movies that have the blueprint and don't mm. and kind of fumble a little bit. Um, like you said, Thunderball was kind of shitty. Yeah. Um, and was still shitty when they made Never Say Never Again. I mean, there's there's some stuff that doesn't age well, but I mean, there's no mistaking this movie's legacy mm. and basically it's effectiveness as an action slash spy thriller. Yeah, so absolutely. I will say that uh, I like it a lot, and I think number seventy might be low. Uh, but I mean, we're talking about like yeah. just British films in general. It's it's not at the top for me, but I won't say where it is yeah. yet. But it's it's there. No, it's 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 it definitely hangs. up there in my list. Yeah, I, I love this movie. It's a great Bond movie, and and as far as the Bond movies go, I put Goldfinger in up there with like, uh, you know, with with Golden Eye, which is obviously that's my Bond. Really, Pierce Brosnan is my Bond because that's what I grew up with. But yeah. I really believe Golden Eye is a great movie. Moonraker. <laughs> Uh, the Ugh. view to a kill. Uh, die another day. Uh, Mr. Kill. Oh, Denise Richards as Christmas Jones. Ah, the world is not enough. What a fuck. That's the, and that's the sad thing about Pierce Brosnan is that Goldeneye is a great movie and he's a pretty good damn good Bond, but he's in his, three of his four movies are fucking awful. I well, Tomorrow Never Dies is not the worst, but it is still a pale shadow. Tomorrow of never. Oh no, that's the world's not tomorrow enough. Tomorrow world... never dies. Cheryl Crow. The world is not enough. I don't remember that. Wasn't one of them Madonna? Uh, that was Die Another Day. That's a really good one, right? Die Another Day. I people, don't know. people love that one, right? Sure. Yeah, they love Mr. Kill. There was a whole <laughs> spinoff plan for Mr. Kill that never happened. Because... Anyway, Jason, we could talk about this right, till yeah, the cows yeah. come home. All right. So now, Jason, we've come to the end. This is the end. My only friend. And you've got two dice in your hand. Hear them? A d10 and a 10d10. 10s d10. Well, 10d10 would be 10d10s. Okay, what am I saying? We have two d10s. Two d10s. Two d10 if you want to be all D&D about it. Two d10. You know what? We got dice. All right? We we got it. We figured it out. And what Jason is going to do right now... While I stall for time, while I bring up the list, mm-hmm. is he's going to roll these dice. Yeah, that's the dice. That's the sound. 
And whatever number he lands on is going to be the number that corresponds with our next movie on the BFI Top 100. Now, if we get one that we've already done, we have we to watch do it again. again. <laughs> damn, goddamn English patient is going to be on this show 500 times that we Jesus have to. Jesus Christ. Uh, so, Jason, we ready? give you a little blow. That's what she said. Thank you. Wait, she's right. going to give you cocaine? Yep. Well, I hope so. All right, let's do this. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Our movie this week is movie number 44. Okay. Number 44 on the BFI British Film Institute list. <laughs> on the British Film Institute, British Film Institute list. That's right. Number 44. Okay. No idea what this is. Mm-hmm. In 1947. Yep. Black Narcissus. Hmm. Uh, directed by uh, Powell and Pressburger. This is our first Powell and Pressburger movie because there are like five or six of these on oh, here. Oh, wow. Okay. So Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah. Oh, Black- said, oh, Powell and Pressburger. I thought you said the guy's name was like Powell. I thought that like his no. first name was Powell and Pressburger. No, no. <laughs> so we just barely missed the life and death of Colonel Blimp. Oh, so, well, it's still... It's which still is also, the- also Powell and Pressburger. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so yeah, Black Narcissus, 1947. If you could somehow track down that movie, we advise you to watch it. Yes, sir. Because we are going to talk about it next week on this program. But for now, Jason, God save the queen. God save the screen. And for screen and country, I'm Brendan. I'm Jason. And we are shaken. Not stirred. Not stirred.